Thanks, Sam. Patrick, lovely to hear your Baptist enthusiasm for the prayer book. <laughs> One of the things I found I missed when I was in Mexico, actually, uh, was prayer book worship, enjoying the familiar, you know, beautifully crafted, theologically rich words. And what makes them, in large part, so rich uh, and beautiful is that most of it comes from the scriptures. So we turn to the scriptures now and we continue on in our series in Matthew, looking at Jesus' teaching blocks. Now, I remember hearing that at some point early in his uh, career, Derek Kidner was asked to give a series of talks on sin. And for years afterwards, he was the go-to person if you wanted someone to talk about sin. So I've been thinking that when Reese returns from his European filming adventure, I must thank him for assigning me two passages about sin for our Matthew preaching series. <coughs> Reese actually signed up to verse 22 for today. But, well, I thought to myself, no, don't rush it. Why hurry on to forgiveness? <laughs> so I've left verses 21 and 22 for Anthea, who's going to preach tomorrow on the parable of the unforgiving servant. Stay tuned. Well, I'm going to let you in a little bit on my sermon preparation, and I'm going to tell you about the three sermons I'm not going to preach, which also happen to be the three ways I've most often heard this passage preached. I want to talk to you about what this passage is not about. This passage is not primarily about settling quarrels between believers. It's about dealing with sin, and if the NIV has the text right, it's not even specifically about what to do when you're the victim of another believer's sin. Certainly we can learn lots from this passage about how to approach conflict and you know, the peacemaker and other Christian resources on resolving conflict appeal to this passage regularly and, and rightly. Let me offer one caveat in that regard. If we apply this passage woodenly, we fail the cross-cultural awareness test. See, lots of countries around the world have indirect cultures where it's normal to use a mediator in conflict. David Augsburger describes it like this. He says, Western styles of conflict resolution value one-to-one -one directness, direct address, confrontation, self-disclosure, negotiation, and resolution. In the other two-thirds of the world, conflicts are immediately referred to a third party, an older, wiser, neutral, skilled family member or trusted person in the community. Triangulation, now Pastoral Care 101 in the West, never do triangulation. In the majority world, triangulation serves to save face for both parties and to reduce shaming in the system. Now, to Western ears, that sounds like an obvious breach of the principle here of involving as few people as possible in the conflict, doesn't it? But isn't minimising shame, dishonour and the loss of face when dealing with sin very much in accord with Jesus' teaching here? Certainly scripture stands over culture, but it also has to be applied appropriately within cultures. Some food for thought. But as I say, conflict resolution 
isn't the heart of this passage. And I think the passage is also not primarily about what to do when you're the victim of sin, the person sinned against. You might be more familiar with the wording, if a brother or sister sins against you. Not all the manuscripts have those last words, against you, and if the NIV has it right, those words were added later rather than being part of the original. And again, of course, the passage can tell us lots about how to handle the situation when another Christian sins against us. Here too, though, let me offer one caveat. Resources like uh, the Resolving Everyday Conflict course that some of you I'm sure are familiar with uh, and others apply this passage helpfully to, well, everyday conflict, but not to extreme conflict like war or to relationships where there's a big power differential between the perpetrator and the victim. So you don't tell the Tutsi believer whose whole village has just been slaughtered by a professing Hutu Christian group. Well, you go over to the Hutu village and point out their fault to them in person. Bad idea. Well, in terms of what the passage is about, the implication of omitting those words against you is that the teaching of the passage is more general. If a brother or sister sins, the application isn't limited to circumstances where you have a personal grievance. It encompasses a much broader responsibility to care for God's people when they sin. That's actually quite challenging, isn't it? In a privatised, individualistic culture that has elevated a particular view of tolerance to the point of being a cardinal virtue, it'd be much easier not to get involved in confronting other people with their sin, except perhaps when we do have a personal grievance and so a vested interest in the situation. And those of us who are conflict avoiders find even that hard to do. By the way, when I speak about confronting people with their sin, I'm not talking about dissing them in a Facebook post, just in case you're wondering. Well, when we read these verses without those words against you, we're not in the complaints department. We're in the pastoral care department. The primary question that the passage is answering is no longer, what do I do when I'm the victim of someone else's sin? Instead, the question becomes, when I see my brother or sister in Christ sinning, how do I love them? Some of you might be sitting there thinking, I know this passage is about church discipline. Well, yes, and with all due respect to our friends at Nine Marks, no. Well, it depends on how you define church discipline, but in these verses, you'll notice that corporate disciplinary action on the part of the church is actually only one part of a wider process of mutual, mutual care in dealing with sin in the Christian community. So church discipline is maybe not the best way of describing what this whole passage is about. Again, it has lots of application to church discipline. And once again, let me offer one caveat. The slow approach is not always the right approach. So for example, if a Christian work is implicated in 
pedophilia. Right? That requires immediate action, including in our context mandatory reporting rather than a quiet one-to-one -one chat. And our passage is about how to deal with sin in the church. Now, I know we tended to ignore the headings, but actually I should have just looked at the NIV heading. It would have saved me half the sermon. <laughs> um, if you look back, verses 10 to, 4 set the tone, 10 to 14 set the tone. There Jesus tells the familiar story of a lost sheep. Though not to talk about bringing outsiders in, like he does in Luke 15, but to talk about preventing insiders from straying. And for preachers, isn't it nice to know that you can recycle your illustrations? You have good warrant. So God the Father's pastoral concern in those verses that not one of the little ones who believe in Jesus should perish flows into our verses about confronting a brother or sister with their sin. Yesterday we were thinking about the wider context of chapter 18 and I want you to notice that this teaching about what to do about other Christians' sin is surrounded by teaching about humility and forgiveness. So there's no place for self-righteous condemnation or witch-hunting here. If you need to confront another Christian about their sin, check your own heart before you start. When we deal with the sin of a brother or sister, we do it as gospel people who ourselves depend entirely on God's grace to us in Jesus. Incidentally, wonderful song selections earlier in the service that set the tone for thinking about this passage as well, as we think about the Father's deep love for us and our service to one another. Now, Matthew 18 doesn't specify the kind of sin. It's pretty general. But we're given a procedure to follow in verses 15 to 17 and a theological basis for it in verses 18 to 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And that chapter moves on here from the language of little ones that we saw yesterday to the family language of brothers and sisters. So confronting sin is part of loving one another in the Christian family. Although it has its roots back in the Old Testament. Listen to these words from Leviticus 19. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Isn't that an extraordinary combination? And did you notice in those words from Leviticus that the opposite of a frank rebuke is a hateful heart? Isn't that extraordinary? Well, the familiar procedure in Matthew involves four steps. First, speak to the brother or sister in private. Show them their fault. And the goal is to win your brother or sister, not to win an argument with them. Second, if they don't listen, go again and 
take one or two others with you as witnesses maybe witnesses of the sin if they've been aware of it too or perhaps more likely as witnesses of the conversation in case it has to be taken further uh, and either way there's a concern there isn't there for both truth and justice as we deal with one another's sin third if they still don't listen bring the matter to the whole church personally I've only ever had to get to step three that's ambiguous isn't it but we'll move on uh, fourth if they remain unrepentant treat them as a pagan or a tax collector now that's Jewish talk for have nothing to do with them the you there actually is singular still talking to the individual believer if your brother or sister sins what do you do but probably excommunication by the communities involved in this last step given the escalation of bringing the matter to the whole church some people read treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector and think well Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors so what he means here is that we should be their friends and accept them even if they don't listen now please never ever write that in an exegetical paper it makes nonsense of the sequence in these verses nevertheless even excommunication is an expression of Christian love that sounds odd doesn't it excommunication is an expression of Christian love love for God because he is dishonored and the church's gospel witness is hindered if professing believers live in unrepentant sin love for other believers because they might be led astray and love for the brother or sister who is sinning because even excommunication has the goal of restoration on that last note remember how Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 tells the church in Corinth to excommunicate a member who's living in flagrant sexual sin and he writes hand this man over to Satan ouch for the destruction of the flesh double ouch so that and here it comes so that he may be saved on the day of the Lord so this slow careful procedure is designed to confront sin lovingly to minimize exposure escalation and shame to restore the individual the brother or sister and to maintain fellowship with excommunication only as a last resort for persistent stiff-necked impenitence and even that need not be final well verses 18 to 20 then provide a theological basis for this procedure truly I tell you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven again truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three gather in my name there I am with there am I with them well what are we meant to make of this language about binding and loosing a few clues in Matthew 23 Jesus 
says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. In Luke chapter 11, he says that the experts in the law have taken away the key to knowledge. And in a more uh, immediate context, just a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 16, you might remember, Peter declares of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then on that basis, on the basis of his confession, Jesus replies and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it's important there to hold Peter's confession, his recognition of who Jesus is, alongside his commissioning. And these various clues, I think, suggest that Jesus is talking about a kind of teaching authority, that the binding and loosing have to do with both declaring and applying the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is, as Peter recognises, the Christ and the Son of the living God. Incidentally, that means that the lovely words of verse 20, uh, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them, aren't about corporate worship or prayer meetings, although prayer is involved here. But in this context, that language is about the corporate dimension of lovingly confronting brothers and sisters in Christ with their sin and, if necessary, excluding them from the Christian community. When you do that rightly, Jesus is with you. And properly administered church discipline is God's discipline. So when you agree about it on earth, the Father does it in heaven. There's a correspondence. And that fits into a wider theme. In Matthew's Gospel, where the kingdoms standardly call the kingdom of heaven, Jesus gives the church authority to represent heaven on earth. So we saw a moment ago in Matthew 16 that he extends that authority to Peter. And here in chapter 18, he extends it to all believers. And if we keep reading on, we get to Matthew 28. And that same kind of authority is extended to the ends of the earth and the end of the age. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always. There's that language again. Even to the end of the age. Now, you knew it was inevitable, right? That I had to find a way of talking about global mission here somewhere. See, I realised that this week's the first time I've actually preached from Matthew. And I thought, well, no self-respecting dean of global mission could preach from Matthew and not get to the Great Commission somehow. So there we are. The kingdom of heaven has broken into the world. And even now, as they wait for its consummation, 
Those who believe in Jesus have entered into the kingdom of heaven. And as the Christian community declares and applies the gospel of the kingdom to both insiders and outsiders, it does so with the authority of Jesus to represent heaven on earth. Let me offer one caveat. No, let's pray. Let's pray. (laughs) If a brother or sister sins, Heavenly Father, yesterday we looked at earlier verses in this chapter and asked for humility as we saw the drastic consequences of causing other believers to stumble and the drastic action you call us to take in removing stumbling blocks from our own lives. Today we ask that when we become aware that a brother or sister is sinning, you would fill us with the wisdom and the tender compassion of Jesus' teaching in these verses. Help us to act lovingly and gently to restore one another by applying the gospel to our lives, to maintain our gospel fellowship, to strengthen our gospel witness. And when we have to address a believer's sin corporately, help us to do it with bold humility, acting on the authority of Jesus himself and faithfully representing your character and your purposes in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.